Our Father, uh, we thank you for another day of worship and uh, in preparation for the week ahead. And we ask now that you humble us as we approach perhaps the most important topic uh, that history and eternity hinge on, uh, forgiveness. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, good morning. Uh, my name is uh, Jason Wallace. Um, I, uh, that's about all you need to know. We can start from there. Yes. Um, uh, at this point, I, I did the class a couple of weeks ago uh, for uh, Gil asked me to, to kind of uh, patchwork it with him. And, and I was in here a couple of weeks ago, and, uh, but I, I wasn't here last week. I listened, so I'm caught up on, on where we are. Um, and just by way of, of quick review, before I, I dive into what I want to talk about today, uh, I, I left off uh, with this question of forgiveness and justice. And I, I tried to make a case, and uh, biblically, that there is a relationship between these things, that, that our, our longing for something something that reorders and makes things right when they don't seem right. And I think the scripture is clear that that longing is by virtue of our creation, uh, yet albeit fallen creation, that we, we have a sense of order and rightness. Uh, Paul speaks of this in Romans 1, and again later in Romans Eight, about the groaning of creation for something else. And I think that any uh, con- context for forgiveness begins with this, this sense and this, this need and this longing for justice. And it's not simply forgiveness or justice as it relates to what's been done to us, perhaps, which is critical and, and serious, but it's also what we've done to others. And uh, from there, we can tie it to the notion of atonement. We, we want things to be made right. We want uh, what we feel to be wrong to be reordered in the right direction. And, of course, uh, we can look in the history of, of thought, of, of Western thought in particular, and you can see various attempts at trying to make sense of this thing called justice. Uh, indeed, it, in, in the ancient world, it's the highest political ideal we have. Uh, to, to attain a civilization or a personhood that strives for justice. And it was considered the, the capstone of the virtues. The, the difficulty is when you begin to pour over some of these ancient thinkers, which I'm sure you do all the time, uh, you begin to see that um, forgiveness isn't in the pantheon so much. Uh, there, there are different words that allude to it, but it's, it's more forgiveness is, is, is couched more as a kind of self-control, a kind of balance, a kind of ability to chin up and deal with it in a manly or, or womanly way. Um, uh, Christianity changes this idea, uh, in, in, again, in a kind of a broad historical narrative. Christianity uh, attacks the idea of justice forgiveness in a different way because it ties it to transgression and divine intervention. So we see from the Old Testament pattern forward that uh, any allusion to forgiveness, any uh, reference to forgiveness is tied 
to a, a violation or a transgression against the character of God. Uh, so the, the Hellenic notion, or the Greek notion, the Roman notion, uh, becomes transformed from justice, the idea of justice as the highest good, that we, we begin to see in the Christian mind, in the Christian thought from, from Christ to Paul on into the early church, forgiveness becomes uh, not only the highest good, but a good that is completely dependent upon the justice of God. So they find their, their center in the cross. Heavy stuff. Uh, not, not, I mean, there, that's a whole, I think that's a whole hour to chew on right there, maybe 15 minutes, hopefully more. Uh, lifetime, right? Uh, but I, I, what I want to walk away with, or the takeaway I want for that as we set up today's uh, discussion, is that we have a need to be made right with other people. We have a need to feel vindicated with other people. Whether it's something small from maybe our childhood or maybe it's something big, um, we, we're, we're drawn to the idea that if, if I've been wronged or if I see somebody that's been wronged, I want it right. And the only way we can answer that, that longing, that, that desire for justice in Christian terms is uh, transcendence. It's the transcendence of God who then intervenes to make us understand that justice alone has to be um, thought of in terms of what God is capable of doing to make things right. Uh, that's why I believe these things have to be held in tension. You can't take forgiveness apart from justice. And if you take justice apart from forgiveness, you're thrown back into a kind of pre-Christian or pagan, and I think we ended the last class almost in a therapeutic mindset. Chin up. Deal with it. You, you can take this. You can deal with her. You can make it through Thanksgiving. You know, something like that, right? So, um. So today I want to talk, uh, the rest of the time, I want to talk about forgiveness and hope. So to tie it all together from my end and, and, and trying to, to play off what Gil has already set up for us, um, I want to talk about justice, forgiveness, and hope together uh, as, as a picture, as a composite. So I'll, I'll press in that way, and hopefully we can also have time for discussion I, I, in, in listening to the uh, the lesson from last week, there's some very good discussion, uh, I thought, uh, throughout that. And hopefully we can generate some of that as well. So, um, in 1995, uh, at ceremonies that were marking the 50th anniversary of the end of the Second World War and the liberation of Auschwitz, Elie Wiesel, uh, Elie Wiesel, some may have, Eli Wiesel is maybe in a good American way to say, but Elie, I'm, I'm <laughs> Elie Wiesel, Elie Wiesel uh, was asked to speak and to pray. And if you know, uh, you, some of you may recognize the name, but many of you might. He wrote uh, a series, uh, he, was a, he was a survivor of Auschwitz. 
he, he saw his mother and his sister taken the first day he was there, never to be seen again. To the, uh, they were separated into the female side of the camp. He survived with his father for a good long while, um, up until the liberation. But then his father, he lost his father. Uh, just from Ill, just the, the sheer uh, uh, physical uh, illness that had overtaken his, his dad at that time. For 10 years, he refused to speak of it or talk of it uh, or, or write about it. And, and then in 55, 1955, a decade after the experience, he began a series with uh, that he, night. Uh, and some of you may remember it. If you have children, some of them may be reading it at this time. Um, he followed it up with Dawn. Uh, about uh, which ha- goes from the experience of the camps in night to Palestine, the reestablishment of Palestine in dawn. That's the background. Elie Vassell, who becomes a face or a spokesman for uh, you know the horrors of the Holocaust and this cry for justice, offers the following prayer: God of forgiveness, do not forgive those who created this place. God of mercy, have no mercy on those who kill here Jewish children. Um, That was the prayer. Um, Amen. You know, I I still draw still... draw up, you know, when I when I read something like that or think about something in the context that this man uh, went through. It has an air of the imprecatory psalms, if you know what I'm talking about, that the call of a curse uh, down upon your enemies. Um, and, and why begin there? Well, because I think to to speak of forgiveness and, and using uh, paraphrasing what Gil said last week, we have to name the thing for what it is. We can't just talk of forgiveness flippantly. Um, we have to speak with an edge of hard realism. Um, we have to speak not only of perhaps horrible things that have happened to us personally, or even perhaps that we might have perpetrated upon others, but we, we actually have to pause and think of the most horrible things possible. Bear with me on this. To, to speak of forgiveness means you cannot simply stop with, I'm offended, or you've hurt my feelings. To, to speak of forgiveness, especially if you want to speak from the Christian point of view, is to actually have to speak of the most horrendous acts that humanity has committed. Uh, the Holocaust, of course, and we're living in, we still live in the shadow of the Holocaust. Um, we can think of harm done to children in various ways. Um, I, don't, I don't have to enumerate them. Um, but I think before we can talk about forgiveness, justice, and hope, we actually have to name the thing for what it is. We're talking about perhaps the most guttural um, uh, part of ourselves in terms of, of our understanding of that's wrong. That's just not right that that happened that way. And you have every right to be full of anger. Um, there's a brutality to forgiveness. There, there, there's, a, there's a harshness to it that we have to look at it. 
And, and I think here's where I, I want to begin the hope, though, is I think that Christianity allows us to do that differently, perhaps, than other roadmaps or blueprints allow. It allows us a realism, and it allows us to actually name the thing and look at it, to, to, uh, to stare the beast in the eye. In a way, perhaps other blueprints or roadmaps or methods of forgiveness don't. And to me, that's a beginning, that, that's a, a starting point for hopefulness, for a kind of hopefulness. Most attempts at articulating a method, a method of forgiveness are well-meaning and perhaps even helpful at some level. But I don't know how realistic they are. When I, when I hear them or when I, when I listen to how they're articulated, I'm not sure I hear the hard realism. Let me give you a couple of examples. I'm going to read a quote to you. It's a, fam- it's a famous quote, okay? Uh, at least in the, in the area of um, psychology and, and psychiatry. Forgiveness is giving up the hope that the past could have been any different. It's accepting the past for what it was and using this moment and this time to help yourself move forward. It's giving up the hope that the past could be any different. It's accepting the past for what it was and using this moment and this time to help yourself move forward. You know, on the surface of that, I think there's some wisdom there. I do. But when I press it, I I, I do. I I pause a bit. I pause in terms of the realism that I'm that I'm trying to to get us to think about. The the quote is always mistakenly attributed attributed to Oprah, Oprah Winfrey, um, because she says it a lot. um, And she made it kind of popular. It's actually a quote from a writer named Jack Cornfield. I don't know if you've heard the name Jack Cornfield. He is uh, a teacher of uh, American Theravada Buddhism. He's a Buddhist. And he is trained as a Buddhist monk uh, in Thailand. And a very intelligent man who, who puts forward this idea that forgiveness is about letting go of any hope that the past could be different and it's simply moving forward with what you have at this moment into the future. A couple of problems in context of this realism. Why is this moment any different from the past? And how do we know it's going to be any different in the future. What is it that's hopeful about the future that's so easy to get rid of in the past? My, my point is, is when you think about this, what, where's the guarantee that just because you're able to say what happened in the past now is done, that first of all, something bad's not going to happen at this moment or that it's not going to happen again, and the cycle just keeps repeating itself. Do you follow what I'm, I'm suggesting? There's a spiral to this that makes me uncomfortable. When, 
if I could ask Mr. Cornfield or Miss Winfrey, I suppose I would ask, what are we moving forward to? When you tell me that I can let go of what was the past, I can't change it. That's what they're saying. But you can move forward. Where? Where do I go from here? That answer is not ready. It's not realistic in some ways because it's not giving me an accurate or should I, I should be more careful, a rounded, holistic view of human nature at the center of past, present, and future. That something's there in our nature, in our past, in our present, in our future, that can't just be said, well, that's done. As if now and then tomorrow, it won't be there. And I think, if, if I can be honest, I, I think that is some of the, the Buddhist... Uh, worldview uh, articulating itself there but just because we can forgive something in our past does it really mean we have the capability uh, to do the same thing again and again and again it it almost seems maddening to think about because i can almost promise you somebody's going to bother you between now and the end of the day much less do something horrible to you between now and the end of your life and I don't know the resource you draw from. Well, you know, back then, I handled this pretty well. I think the Bible is much more realistic because it tells us something about human nature. And more importantly, it tells us something about God's nature, about the horizontal relationships we share, as well as the transcendent. Um, it, 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 the voice is always past, present, and future tense when we read the Bible. So I, I, I'll leave that quote there. Impressed to the next one. Dr. David Kupfer, he's the head of psychiatry at the University of Pittsburgh. He also uh, led up the planning committee for the uh, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual Number Five. Every year we're getting a new one. So uh, this was the 2013 planning committee. This is a long quote, but bear with me. Forgiveness is the path from hurt to healing. From anger to peace. Why forgive people who have truly hurt you and treated you unfairly? Because forgiving them will make you a healthy, happier person. Letting go of resentment is good for your heart, both emotionally and physiologically. What is forgiveness? It is giving up hurt and anger that you may be entitled to have and hold. Forgiveness does not imply denying that you were mistreated or forgetting your pain. It does not mean that you condone being hurt or that you will stick around to let yourself get hurt by the same boss or friend that just finished hurting you. It just means that you have committed yourself to learning without unnecessary suffering. Again, I, there's some nuggets there. I would say so, um, that I could I could chin up with. But I would ask, again, reverting back to this hard realism, this biblical realism, can human nature make this transition that he's talking about? That's the verb he's using here. Can it do it on its own power? Can it just will itself to be better and healed and to let go, to learn without unnecessary suffering? I think all suffering is unnecessary if you just ask me on the street corner. But that's not what my faith teaches me. 
what, what I want to draw your attention to with this, I, I want to suggest that both of these comments, which are within the last 20 years, reflect forgiveness as an act of willpower. They, they reflect a, a very modern idea that has deep ancient roots that I tried to point out last time and I talk about justice. That there's a way in which you can just be a better person and be virtuous by letting go and leaving it in the past. In other words, it's forgiveness as ballast as something that keeps us on an even keel. It's temperance. It's learning moderation by learning to say, that's done and now I can move on. It, it, it's a fascinating commentary on how we understand ourselves, how culturally we understand ourselves. That if we can just tap into the right reserve of will and motivation, somehow we'll be able to hold on and get to the end. I'll pause there for thoughts, comments, or questions. It's a dramatic place to pause. So. <laughs> Is this familiar? Is this language familiar to you? At least, if not from daytime television, from Ellen or something like that, from something else. I mean, is it familiar in, in some other way? It, it's, uh, it's the language, it's the rhetoric of, of uh, it's going to be all right if you will just allow it to be all right. There's no actual alteration in this state between two people. There's no there's no uh, no debts been created. It's just sort of a frame of mind. How, and it really is it's a frame of mind. That's it. right. I mean, how do you how do you how do you deal with it? That's right. It, uh, it's a it's a perspective. It, it's a way of internalizing the right perspective. That, that's right. Yes, sir. I, think, I think I know where you're going, but I, I would like to say that I think they're right for the wrong reason. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that I can get into that. I, I did. Well, I'll try. I mean, I think that when I read it on the surface, when I do a surface reading of it, I hear something truthful in what they're saying. When I push it, I'm not comfortable because I don't think it gets at the heart of the realism that an prayer from Elie Vassal gets at. I, I, I actually understand the prayer of Elie Vassal better than I understand what these two comments are saying about forgiveness. Because there's one thing that comes in view with the, the Vassal prayer that you don't hear in these other two comments, and that's God that there's something transcendent involved here. There's something outside of ourselves involved in this notion of justice and forgiveness. And if you put the three up there and had them come in the room and each make the presentation, I'm going to say, you know, the Jewish guy who almost died, I, I think I understand what he's saying. The Jewish psychiatrist, I don't know. <laughs> you know, I don't know. 
much to make lemonade, so to speak. You know, we don't deal with the lemons. That's right. That's right. Or, or the joke that when life gives you lemons, make lemonade and get bourbon. <laughs> the, um, I can say that here. That's another. Uh, that's good. Uh, any other? Yeah, Matt. That's need, right. You know, which, which you know, the, the gospel answer there is that you need something that, that's permanent to to deal with it. You know, it, it's that's not right. just a case. I, mean, I, I suppose you can repeat that to yourself every Thanksgiving. Um, and we all know how I do. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and, so that, and that's that's what seems to be problematic. I mean, no, and I think you're right on it. I I, I think you're right on it. I, I don't. I, the two things I wouldn't want to downplay. One, the the seriousness of the pain that somebody has endured. Um, and, and Gil has been very good about reemphasizing this. It is your pain. It is naming the thing. It is real. So, uh, for, for some of us, we could look at something and say, really? That's what you're holding on to? Um, let me tell you what happened to me. You know? um, it's not the Holocaust. But it can be your own personal Holocaust sometimes, uh, especially when... Uh, one, things that come to mind, for instance, happen to children that don't have the emotional uh, support or categories to deal with what's happened to them from an adult. Um, you know, that, that guttural sense of that is wrong. Um, even Christ says as much about harming the little ones. So I, I don't want to downplay that, nor do I want to downplay this. I don't want to downplay the sincerity of people who are trying to help. You know, I, I read these quotes and I do see wisdom. I do see a, a common grace there. I see an attempt at, at getting at the problem. What I don't see is, is, is completing it, of bringing it to its home, of taking us to our final destination where we can rest in this question of justice and forgiveness. I see it throwing us back on our own resources and struggle over and over again. Let me, uh, let me let's turn to Scripture. Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. Um, Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. Uh, the context is uh, there's a series of pericopes or stories of, of Jesus and the miracles. He's doing these kind of amazing things, you know, uh, uh, casting demons into pigs and stuff. You know, you just see him walking around zapping, you know, it's awesome. You're like, well, I mean, I, it, it's, it's a series of these things. That uh, he almost, you know, with a childlike mindset, he seems like a superhero walking around. Um, but he's also, it's curious also that he, he's also telling them to be quiet about it at this point. He's saying, shh, 
I don't want you to tell anybody that I healed you. Right? So it, it, there's, a, that, there's a curiousness to this. But this is where this particular story falls. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Some men brought a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blasphemy. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your heart? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, Get up, take your mat, and go home. Then the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God, who had given such authority to a man. Um, you know, you start wading into this topic, you really can just throw a dart at the Bible and hit something that can relate to it. But I, I, I looked at the, I didn't do that, by the way. With I, when I, I thought about this, and I thought about how do, you, how do we get at a more realistic understanding, from a Christian realism, about this question of forgiveness. And, and I thought about this story of Jesus healing the paralytic. And a couple things come to, to mind in this. Uh, on the on the one to begin with, I think we can say that if you're if you're identifying with anything in the story, I, I would suggest that uh, there's a part of us that can identify with the teachers who are saying, "Who who does this guy think he is that he can forgive?" It goes back to that created nature. There's something wrong in the world, and there's something we long for. Who do you think you are that you can make it right? Who, who are you to say you can readjust whatever's wrong to forgive? And I think if we're honest, we all have that side to ourselves when we look at Christ. And by God's grace, I think we can come to understand it more every day. But just in the natural to look at Christ is to say, who do you think you are? Um, in, in my line of work, people make whole careers over asking this question in the university. Who do you think you are? The second person, of course, is I think we feel a little better about it. That's the paralyzed man. Now, not, you, know, you don't want to be one of the, the teachers of the law, but to be uh, the paralyzed man is to be healed. It's somebody who... Uh, needs healing and desires it and by faith uh, accomplishes is a, the healing is accomplished through the power of God but notice that on the one hand we stand as accusers questioners skeptics um, demanding a sense of justice but denying that you are the power that can bring it on the other hand we're paralyzed Paralysis is the inability to 
have locomotion, to move, to will ourselves to move. And the whole story of forgiveness here is tied to both a denial of Christ's authority to do it, but also the inability of the paralytic to do it himself. So we're forced in this particular story, as in most biblical stories, to look at Christ. We're forced to ask ourselves, what is he doing that's making the action of this meaningful in terms of the question of forgiveness? We are skeptics, we are doubters, but we're also paralyzed in our ability uh, to, to save ourselves, to, to, to move toward to the willfulness I was trying to describe earlier, to will ourselves, to move toward. Uh, and of course, Christ throws it all uh, on the mat when he says, what? You, you think me making him... Uh, uh, you don't think I have the ability to forgive sins. Because he said, you can't comprehend that, can you? Can you comprehend this? Get up and walk. Okay. We're backing off now. <laughs> right? Um, so that brings me to, I think, the final thing we, we want to look at at this, and that is authority. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe. They praised God who had given authority to such a man. God had given authority to such a man. And earlier in the passage, he says, your sins are forgiven. Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or say get up and walk? But I want you to know, this is Christ speaking, that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. Um, Authority. Authority. There's a commissioning. There is a, a, a deputizing. There is an empowerment that Christ carries with uh, the notion of forgiveness, and I would argue justice as well. That we cannot uh, requisite in ourselves. We can't pull it out of ourselves and will ourselves to it. We surrender to it. The authority at that moment is both spiritual and physical. It's, I'm going to make you right in the forgiveness of sin. I'm going to make you eternally right. I'm going to, I'm, that transcendence, not, but I'm also going to make you physically healed as well. And guess what? You couldn't do either one. You didn't have that ability to do it. And so what we're left with when you get to the end of this thing is after you know, reflecting on um, forgiveness as, uh, as a kind of virtue of manning up and dealing with things or, or, the, or the womanly I, I, will, I will listen to her one more time you know I, I, after, after going through all the motions of trying to find forgiveness as a kind of virtue or after finding it as a kind of willfulness in the, in the therapeutic sense that we, we read that if you can just no, there's no hope in the past, but there's hope. On it, we're left with surrender. We're left with I'm not in charge. We're left with a kind of freedom that can only come through um, the intervention of, of God. Uh, it, it's, it's a freedom that has to be more than uh, something that can just be reduced to virtue, it's, uh, which, which is fine and good. 
but it's a freedom that allows you to recognize the authority of Christ to forgive. And I think that this is where our hope is. And when it comes to forgiveness is the burden is not ours because we can't do it. It's impossible. And the beginning of hope is realizing that, that it's been done. And it's a matter of beginning to surrender to that eternal echo. I have the authority to do this. You worship me. I am the Lord of the universe. I am God. I loved you enough to save you. These things that we learn over and over again, all of a sudden become part of a larger composite that forgiveness is not something we have to lean on ourselves with day after day after day or we're going to destroy ourselves. We're going to fail. We're going to constantly go back to, okay, that's done, but tomorrow's hopeful. Uh, That to me is where the hard realism of Christianity causes us to gasp and pause just for a moment, that it's not just about our nature and our ability to hurt one another over and over again, but it's the ability of Christ to continually say, I have the authority to do this. Even in the most hurtful moment, when you can't forgive, Jesus is doing it for you. And it's learning through that relationship of trust. So I, I think that's where justice, hope, uh, and uh, forgiveness come together. I'll, I'll close with another passage. Uh, another, um, I'm going to paraphrase this. Um, but it, it's from a, a piece that a, a law professor named Jeffrey Murphy wrote. Uh, the context is kind of complicated. He started out, uh, he, wrote a, he wrote on the question of justice. Why do we, why, legally, why do we pursue justice? And as a non-believer, he wrote this uh, in, in the idea, with the idea that it's, it is an eye for an eye, that ultimately that's what justice is supposed to be. He converted, and I'm going to paraphrase some of his thoughts. Christianity changes almost all the calculations about forgiveness. It teaches that man is fallen and so is probably more deserving of the harm that comes to him than he is likely to admit. It teaches that even criminals are precious children of God who, it can be hoped, might undergo a conversion. And it reminds us that the universe is providentially ordered and that God will bring good out of evil. This last point is most important because so much of earlier, of earlier justifications of vindictiveness and punishment rest on the assumption that since everything in the struggle against evil depends on us, we cannot let our guard down. This is a quote from this uh, gentleman. If I think that I alone can and must make things right, then I risk taking on a kind of self-importance that makes forgiveness of others difficult if not impossible. Trusting in God's providence, on the other hand, guards us against overreaching in our sense of responsibility. So, a couple of minutes left. Um, Easy topic, I know. Talk a little bit about Yeah, Um, we're called to it. 
we're called to confess our sins. Um, I think there has to be a mystery to that at some level, biblically speaking, because we know that God knows our sins and he knows our hearts. And I guess the default mode, and I, I could see one of my children doing this, saying, hey, I'm, you, know, you know what I'm doing, so I'm covered. You know, flip the switch. That's not exactly what confession is, right? Confession is um, a conscious, uh, at some level, a conscious acknowledgement that we need forgiveness, that it needs to be articulated, that the word needs to be said, the thing needs to be named, is what Gill says. You have to name it. And I think... The trespass, the violation, the transgression has to be named. You have to name it. And for some reason, God wants to wants us to name it, even though he knows all. He wants us naming it. Just a thought from Hosea. At the end of the last chapter, Hosea 14, he calls for the nation's return. He says, your sins have been your downfall. But in returning, he says, take words with you. Yeah. Take words with you yeah. and return to the Lord. Say to him. Say it. Name it. Say to him. Forgive all our sins. That's good. Well, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Okay. <laughs>